So our, uh, let me see if I turn my mic on. Yeah, I did. Our second lesson is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in Matthew lately. Continuing in Matthew, I think up right up to Advent season. This is, of course, uh, the he here is Jesus, right? When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? <laughs> Never a good sign of your argument when you immediately start arguing with each other over your argument. And they argued with one another. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors, prostitutes, are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. So the word of the Lord, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for the word of God. Let us pray. O open our eyes, O Lord, that we would see Jesus, that we would hear Jesus, and that we would deepen our understanding of your love for all people. This morning, by the presence of your spirit, may your spirit be our teacher and may we leave this place today seeing the world more fully through Jesus' eyes than we did when we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's tension in the air. You can cut it with a knife, right? In this exchange between Jesus and the elite leaders of the temple. Can't you feel it in the narrative? Now there's been, there's nothing new, there's been tension between Jesus and the religious elite since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Over in the Gospel of Mark, for example, Mark tells us that right out of the gate, there are two things that the religious elite do not like about Jesus. The first thing is that he speaks and acts as one who has authority and power. Never mind that he uses that power and authority for the well-being of people, the sick, the poor, and the marginalized. It frightens them. It worries them. Those who are in positions of power are frightened and worried when they see Jesus at work. I mean, it seems like they can feel that he is the one God has chosen to be in charge, even though they would never admit that. It seems like they can feel it in their bones. And of course that means, if that's the case, that they would need to step aside. 
They don't like that one little bit. Second thing they don't like about Jesus is the company he keeps. Over and over again, the criticism is leveled at Jesus. And here he throws it back at the religious elite. That same criticism they leveled with him over and over again. You're eating with the wrong people. You're eating with the undesirable. Those who the religious elite regarded as undesirable. Jesus regards as desirable. Tax collectors, the prostitutes, those who aren't supposed to be keeping company with people who know God. These are the very people that Jesus loves to hang out with. They don't like Jesus for those two reasons mainly. That's what Mark tells us. So very early, before Jesus has done or said many things at all, okay? Uh, Right after Jesus, very early in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going back to Mark because Mark has an economy of words. And in the Gospel of Mark, it, uh, it really hits you how soon out of the gate people decide that they're going to conspire to kill him, okay? Very early in the Gospel of Mark, right after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, the religious elite get together and they say, we're going, I mean, it's my paraphrase, right? Uh, it says that they conspire with the Herodians, which are the people that are, are, uh, are dispensers of, of, of power and authority on behalf of Rome. It says that they conspire together to destroy Jesus. What had he done? <laughs> he had healed people, right? He had helped people understand that the law against healing on the Sabbath was, was not what it was read to be in that day, but Sabbath was for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. His great sin is caring well for people and welcoming all people into God's presence. This is his great sin. For which they decide not just we will embarrass him, we will oppose him. Uh, No, we will conspire to destroy him. That's right out of the gate. What explains, and we're going to meet them again. Well, we just have in the reading this morning, okay? We meet the same grouping of people, not the same identical human beings, but the same kind of people, and some of whom are probably the same people that were around at the beginning of Gospel of Mark, we meet them again this morning, and you have to ask, what is up with them? What is up with them? What explains them and their hideous hatred of Jesus? Well, it's not because they're rich and powerful. We get that out of the way first. But it is relevant because of how they relate to their wealth and power. I'll explain in a second. Um, Among them are the rich and the powerful, okay? And those who like to be around people who are rich and powerful. Well, they have made deals with the Roman Empire to govern on its behalf. They use the temple to make money at the expense of the poor. They use their power to their own advantage. Rome likes this arrangement because it's convenient for Rome. Helps keep any would-be revolutionaries in their place. And the religious elite like it because they like power and wealth. They do. His popularity with the people, Jesus's, his wisdom and his leadership skills, 
enable almost everybody to recognize that he's the one who should be in charge of Israel. Perhaps the Messiah, many are starting to wonder. Everybody sees this except the religious elite who won't see it, who will not see it. They need to get rid of him. But he's so popular. How could they do it without touching off a revolt? Well, eventually they get Pilate to do it for them, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. This morning we see one more feeble effort on their part to get Jesus to slip up and say the wrong thing under scrutiny. Now these absurd efforts at trapping Jesus always backfire. They always, always backfire. And this one does too. Right? You can see how it backfires in the way that it works. They set a trap. He reverses the trap and springs it on them. Okay? And then Jesus tells this parable against them. It's a simple story with an obvious answer. The right answer to Jesus' question is even given by those that the parable is told against. But what it means to do the will of God, there are lots of rich layers to unfold there. The parable, the right answer is, who does the will of God? Well, the one that goes out and does what he says he's going to do, even though he does it later than he intended and changes his mind, he still goes out working the vineyard. The analogy is obvious. The one who pleases God does the will of God. But what does it mean to do the will of God? So many rich layers to unfold there. The first layer is this. To do the will of God is to recognize that Jesus is the one who can teach you how to do the will of God. Jesus is the one that unlocks the will of God and how the will of God is at work. Now when Jesus brings up John here, it's more than a wise rhetorical move that reverses the trap that they had hoped that Jesus would walk into and springs that trap on them. It is a rhetorical move, but it's more than a wise rhetorical move. Bring up John the Baptist as a reminder that Jesus came to unlock a door into a deeper understanding of what God intends for God's people and the world, what God has intended for God's people and the world all along. And that is... To renew and redeem the whole world. To do the will of the Father has been another way of talking about loyalty to Yahweh and Yahweh's work in the world. Jesus is saying that he holds the key to that in his very person and presence. So the first layer is that Jesus is the key to unlocking a new and fresh movement of God's work in the world. Now let's take a look at a few layers that are representative of what Jesus is unlocking. Now let me just take a step back here. There's a lot of information at once, okay? Let me just recap it for you, maybe a little bit more simply. When Jesus brings up John the Baptist, he is linking in their memory the fact that John the Baptist came and introduced Jesus as the beginning of the, in the inauguration of God's kingdom loose in the world. A new and fresh way of God revealing 
God's self and what God intends to do and what God had intended to do all along in the world. And so when Jesus tells this parable and says to them, who did the will of the Father? And they say the one that went out and did the work. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to do the will of the Father, you recognize me as the one who is here to lead you into doing the will of the Father. All right, that's a quick drawback here. Now, I want to just talk a little bit, okay? I want to just unfold these layers a little bit of what it means for Jesus to uh, demonstrate, embody, and begin this new and redeeming will of the Father, will of God uh, at work in the world, okay? We can find examples of these throughout the Gospels, but for the sake of time and clarity, I'm going to bring them to you from Luke's Gospel, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and mission, Jesus tells us what he is all about when he reads the following passage from the Old Testament in the temple. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says... Right after he reads that portion from the prophet Isaiah, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then just a little bit later in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the grateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." So, what is it that Jesus unlocks for the world? An expanded understanding of God's love to include radical enemy love. He says, this is the way God is. God doesn't just love people who love him back. God loves people who don't love him at all. And God loves people who don't love you at all. And God loves your enemies too. This is the... the so Jesus is on the scene taking the will of God into its fullest expression through expanding an understanding of God's love to include radical enemy love, which we just read about in the Gospel of Luke here, and expanding an understanding of God's mercy and forgiveness, right? And a renewed and deepened focus on the poor and those at the margins, all of that is what Jesus means when he uses this parable to talk about who did the will of the Father. The one who went to work in the vineyard is the one who recognized Jesus, recognizes Jesus as the only one who can unlock God's will for the world. And again, he expresses it in such gentle, 
humble ways that always worked for the good of human beings. And the religious elite hate him for it. Hate him for it. So Jesus is the key to participating in God's fresh movement of renewal in the world. That's what it means to do the will of the Father, to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to do the will of God in and through him, to celebrate who and what Jesus celebrates. But what does this look like on a daily basis? What does it look like on a daily basis? Well, it looks like the life that Paul has in view in our first lesson from this morning. Our first lesson, remember, was from, that Dan read to us, is from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. In that passage that Dan read, we have what is sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn, or Christ poem. Called that way, uh, it's called the Christ hymn, the Christ poem, by not a few New Testament scholars who look at it and analyze the way that the words work and as only you know geeky New Testament scholars can they identify it in it the cadence of a creed perhaps a sung creed in the church maybe Artie can put it in music one day yeah thumbs up <laughs> um, the poem that Dan read to us offers a staggeringly amazing view into the very heart of God prompting us to observe that if you want to know who God is, just look at Jesus' self-giving love, prompting us in turn to confess that God is Christ-like, and in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. But what about the whole daily living thing? You know, how is it that we do the will of the Father, do the will of God, on a daily basis. You know, most of us, um, I think, I won't say most of us, I'll just say me, how about that? I tend to have very legalistic ways of thinking about what it looks like to please God or what it looks like to do the will of God, and it tends to be a checklist of some sort. It has an awful lot to do with me really trying hard to be a better person, me really trying hard to be a better version of myself. I think some of you may be able to relate to that, perhaps. That's really sells short and completely misunderstands what it means to do the will of God. Um, what it means to do the will of God is what comes in these first few verses here where uh, Paul says to have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Our English translations fail us here. Uh, because uh, it doesn't bring out the fullness of that word that's translated mind. That word is just loaded up with so much richness. What it means is to have a pattern of feeling, a pattern of being, and a pattern of thinking. In other words, the whole of our lives are to be aligned with the whole of Jesus' life. Uh, one scholar translates that passage this way, let your pattern of thinking, acting, and feeling 
be which was also displayed in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Pattern of thinking, feeling, acting. That's not an invitation to a checklist. It's not. It's not an invitation to a, I'm going to date myself here, but I remember the WWJD bracelets, okay? It's not an invitation to a wooden imitation. It's not an offer or an ask for a wooden imitation of Jesus, trying to imagine what Jesus would do in every single circumstance. No, it's not those things. When, when Paul says, and now think about what follows, okay? Paul says, have the same mind in you that is in Christ Jesus, and, and that should be translated really to get the fullness of it, the same pattern of thinking, feeling, being that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, the same pattern of Jesus' life should be in you. Then he goes on to talk about what that pattern is. That pattern gets at the very core of who God is self-giving love and basically it's what Augustine says a few centuries later when Augustine says love God and do as you please because when you love God and you do as you please you do what pleases God and you do what makes you more fully human that's what's going on here in this richness of, of Philippians it's a summons and exhortation to let what we experienced at this table shape the core of who we are and what we do on a daily basis. As I said earlier, I said I'd come back to it, and I am now. This table tells a story of your life. No other narrative does. This narrative informs how we allocate our resources, how we do relationships, how we love people, how we extend God's hospitality in the world, and the list goes on. And when you feel as if another narrative is threatening to tell the story of your life, I urge you, return to this table and the narrative it tells you of your life and in the weeks between the trips to the table we support our participation in the true and full narrative of who we are through prayer fellowship with like-minded Christ followers worship and being refreshed by God's word on a daily basis and when we live in this way it is absolutely guaranteed that we will do the will of the Father, that we will do the will of Yahweh. Because the door that Jesus opened for us is nothing less than a way of participating in his very life. Jesus inhabits us, we inhabit Jesus, and that is the way we do the will of the Father the way we do the will of Yahweh. This is what covenant loyalty 
looks like in the reign of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.